This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason. This seemed like a very sane lady, and now she doesn't know what's up, and she's like off stealing money from beat-up pimps or whatever. And by the director of Sci-Fi Channel's Children of Dune miniseries and HBO Max's upcoming Game of Thrones House of the Dragon, Greg Yatanis. Terry Gilliam was like obsessed with getting this hamster to run. Greg shares amazing behind the scenes stories of both shows. And we talk Terry Gilliam's time travel paranoia classic, 12 Monkeys. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts as it really helps new listeners find the show. And be sure to hit that follow and subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And now, without further ado, 12 Monkeys. Greg, how's it going? What time is it there? What, which country are you in? I'm in London. It's eight o'clock at night. I appreciate you guys adapting to my schedule. Oh, it's no problem. So it's great. But oh, of course. Can you talk at all about what you're shooting at the moment? I'm shooting House of the Dragon for HBO, the Game of Thrones prequel. Mm. That's what I'm doing right now. Heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Heard of it? <laughs> I think that's about all I'm allowed to say, but that I'm uh, that I'm doing it. We have the trailer. The teaser trailer came out. Looks great. 40 million yep. views in a few days, which was pretty incredible. Wow. So a lot of excitement and anticipation for it. I'm glad to see that people are you know really curious to see what we're, what we're up to. But I mean, it was a great teaser because it was truly a tease. But I was so glad that they showed the throne room because mm. that was the thing I was most geeking out about when I saw the concept art for that. Yeah. So it was great to yeah. like put that out there so people could finally see. And it makes sense too. Like you've talked about in the original series how, you know, everybody, you know, had always heard about the the, the legend of the thousand swords and such and the and the little finger city, you know, it's barely two hundred. And now you understand like what it once was. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was great. I was so glad they showed that because it's like it's about the coolest thing you've ever seen when you see it in person. Did you feel those forty million eyeballs like peering <laughs> down on your work after the teaser went I, live? I did. I, you know, I I did. I kind of get off social for a couple of days because mm. it was just overwhelming. You know, the response yeah. was crazy, and yeah, and that's exciting. I'm excited that everybody's excited for it. Yeah. That's what awesome. was your first exposure to Game of Thrones? Were you into the books? You know, like. Dune and like everything else, I came into it through the adaptations. Mm. So I came into Game of Thrones late. I remember when it came on HBO and I just didn't necessarily, I was I, I was working a lot and I was running my own shows and I was so absorbed in what I was doing that I just, I had very little bandwidth to, to uh, check things out. And then it was, I remember when the Red Wedding episode happened and everybody was talking about it that I ah. realized I had to like get caught up into the show and get up to speed. And when I did, I got completely sucked in. And I've actually been going back to read the books now because I just, you know, I think the way George writes and especially taking on his material and Ryan, you know, is such a encyclopedia of everything about the books and about everything. So it's it's exciting to be able to have somebody like that to get all my questions answered and, and everything. But I, But actually, you know, for me being able to come into things and be able to be the audience, you know, I always, I find that when people can get really steeped in the books that... Um, this I'm sort of applying this more to Dune right now was that you have to make something that's accessible for people. And I think that if I don't have the answer or if I'm looking for something that maybe to a writer understands those connections, I can help be the audience to to bring that out a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, I think Ryan wrote incredible scripts and you know, I'm I'm like very excited that I get to do the ones I'm doing. That that is a good bridge if you're open to talking a little bit about your history with Dune uh, and making children of Dune for the Sci-Fi Channel back in the day, which was almost twenty uh, years ago. Now. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the, twenty years ago. But the the most successful adaptation of the source material, you know, to date, like it, it both was beloved by fans, watched by many, which is kind of crazy because you actually took the most difficult part of the story to adapt. Like you had to join it after the Paul story. And then, you know, not, not to get into spoilers, but your hero becomes a worm. <laughs> like it's a real wild <laughs> yeah, ride. I think like, I think when you get past the, 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 the set, I mean, the, the, the first two hours of the, of the six hours were, were Dune Messiah and then children of Dune were the next four hours. 
I think once you get past those three books, the books become, you know, relatively unaccessible for adaptation. <laughs> you had an amazing cast. Amazing cast, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I just saw yesterday, they went out to get a quotes from James McAvoy about how he felt about the the villain of the movie coming out. He was very gracious about his time on that movie and like what it meant for his career and his, you know, his history and working in movies. But I mean, it was, it was really oh, stacked nice. I gotta, with folks. I got to see both, that. I did, you know, James, yeah. it was James's first, you know, real job, big job. Yeah. And we pulled him, uh, you know, rel- almost right out of drama school. Mm. And, you know, I saw that, um, you know, both Richard Rubenstein and, and John Harrison were exec producing on Dune. I think they they controlled the rights to Dune for a long time, and I'm sure that's why their names are on it. Ah. You know, but James was not. You know, I fought. I was. I actually almost quit the project over. I was the. I was. I was Casting? out. Yeah, because I really. I when James is the only time in my whole career somebody brought me to tears in an audition, and it was here at the Dorchester Hotel in London. Mm, amazing. And I was so moved, and they weren't feeling it my producer yeah. and i just was like i don't i don't see a way forward on this without him wow the only time i threw down on that project was that and for brian tyler to do the score yeah so which was an incredible That's amazing. piece of music it still remains a, an incredible score for that for that series i'm glad you mentioned the score there's a scene in children of dune where it's like a exterior shot going into uh, alia training mm-hmm. um like where she's training mm-hmm. against the the dummy right and i can't it's it's not a particularly emotional scene unless you kn- kind of know where the story's going but for some reason the first time i saw that i literally cried oh, like wow. it was so it was just like it was the experience of sort of seeing something that you'd read about so many times finally coming to life and i feel it just like captured the world that had been hidden in the pages for so long and it really was i think because of the score more than anything else uh, like yeah. it was this like proposal of i mean you know, the, it looked amazing too but the score really un- lifted it up as you ascend the pyramid that she's training in it was a, st- a stunning piece of brian's work in that is incredible i mean you know he wrote a namanu chief in fremen that song mm. that, that kind of closes out the, amazing. the first two hours like he you know there was a, similar to the way fire and blood um, if you could see, I've, I've stacked up books here to get my computer to hire, which includes a <laughs> signed copy of Fire and Blood from George yeah. that he gave me. So yeah. great. I'm, I'm putting it to good use. Uh, there was a history book that was later sort of pulled that, that Frank had put out that he kind of like redacted, but in it was like a real translation of Fremen into English. And so Brian went into that translation and wrote a song and it was, you know, it was during the time too with, um, God, who was it that did that great kind of vocalization and gladiator and um oh yeah of uh, course uh, what's her name but it was a very you know that kind of haunting lisa gerard lisa gerard maybe? there it is yeah lisa gerard yeah. so yeah. we wanted something in that vein for that mm. and brian does you know he's got perfect pitch he does a lot of his own vocalization and that was again like really a big turning point score for him because everybody started to temp it into trailers and into other movies. So oh, Brian, right. Brian's career took off after that mm. film. And we've stayed good friends. And the vocalizations are huge in Hans's score uh, for Dune as well. Like the vocalizations are one of the most important. It's the vocalizations and the percussion are just like amazing. Oh, wow. Was Children of Dune like a difficult shoot because of all the, the technical aspects involved? Because there's so much like green screen. There's so you much. Know, I, you well, know. it's funny because it was actually... You know, what, what's exciting about working on both a season one of, of Game of Thrones is that it, in a way, like you have eight seasons of knowledge in which to work from. And with the original right. Children of Dune, the the Dune miniseries kind of provided a template of R&D for us to either follow or not. And, and Storaro, interestingly, shot that. And so he had this idea yeah. of using these very theatrical backdrops and, and the impression of sand. And John Harrison directed that mm-hmm. and he wrote, you know, John Harrison has a beautiful command, wrote beautiful scripts of both, you know, Dune and then Children of Dune and Dune Messiah. So I was working with a great script in that. Technically, you know, I came into the project with eight weeks of prep. I, I never stopped prepping. I was never caught up ever. Mm. And in fact, you know, the politics of it, you know, I was working for some, you know, real toxic producer and mm. in order to remain creative control, and I had another producer who was trying to direct, who was trying to direct my second unit and, and was not particularly good at it. Mm. And I ended up directing my second unit on oh, Saturdays man. and Sundays. So I directed oh, wow. 100 consecutive days. I never took a you day off. just burned the candle. I did. That's you know, amazing. I was 20 something then. And I was, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, had the, I had the energy to do it. And I was loving the sets. I was loving what we were doing. You know, we were $25 million budgets. So we were relatively small. 
production. Super tight. Even then, yeah. and, you know, and it won. You know, I'm sure the effects look pretty dated now, but it won the Emmy for the effects back then. And of course, was, you know, and I think the 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 work and the craftsmanship was uh, was really you know incredible. I had never seen either of the sci-fi miniseries shows until this year. And I've now watched the first one. And then I watched the first episode of Children of Dune yesterday. And I was shocked how thematically you were able to be true to the Dune Messiah storyline. Was that difficult? Okay. Was there was there pushback where they're like, hey... Because it's a hard yeah, maybe story. Maybe we don't open by shooting people in the heads if they won't worship the hero. Like... That was yeah. an intense opening. It's a wild anti-hero story, and you really just ran right at it. Oh, good. I wanted to open the uh, the show on the you know, the ice planet of Hoth, basically, you know, and, and be right. able to like, you know, to, to to open against expectations, right. you know, of of what you would expect to start the the show on. And that was again, everything was done on that day was really fun. I remember just we were just covered in it was like we were all drywalling or something. It was <laughs> we all looked like so. Um, Everybody was like unflinching about anything in the material. We had really little to no interference. You know, it was a very, um, the, the Czech crew was astonishing. Like that was, that's still, yeah. when I go back and think like all through my career, some of the great crews I've worked with, the crew of that just blew my mind how it Amazing. went. And it was, you know, it was tricky because there was the right amount of continuity from the previous but also like i wanted fresh blood to make this with me i didn't want to just inherit everybody that worked on the first one because i didn't actually really i didn't like all the choices in the first one and wanted to again push it into green screen i still wanted to give it kind of a theatrical stylized look because there was no version where we were going to be able to go to any real deserts and to get into that but with that there was some beautiful work that we could do and kind of make something that felt uh, escapist yeah. And then Richard, we also, you know, was exciting was that I, I'm a camcorder kid. I grew up, I wasn't like making super eight films. I was making, you know, VHS had just come out. Camcorders had just come out. Video was a medium I was really comfortable with. I loved the immediacy mm. of it. And, you know, Richard wanted to know how I felt about shooting digital. And this was the first thing in television to shoot digital. The only thing that had been oh, had shot digital was the Phantom Menace. Wow. So we were like really, you know, taking this format out for a spin. So it's when you see that, you're seeing really the first longest, biggest thing in television to shoot digital, which was exciting when, you know, I, I did a, an episode of House that we shot entirely on a 5D camera. And, you know, that also was a big game changer. So it was exciting to be on these technological, as well as like, you know, how we use Twitter with television and these kind of things that I've been able to be present for along the way. It's nice mm. when there's also an additive way that we're telling the stories on a technical level banshee had that with the multi-platform mm -hmm. way that you could enter the story um and so these kind of things were fascinating to me so there was a technical appeal of how we could make this that was really exciting for me and, and, and richard responded to the fact that i was excited and then it was like i was on a plane and i was in it and i was i could not believe how much work was needed and i had no idea really what i was doing if i was doing it right the best validation came when I was watching the behind the scenes videos of Lord of the Rings, because I saw that Peter Jackson's process was very similar mm. to how I did Dune. And mm -hmm. I felt like, okay, like, and I loved that trilogy. Like yeah, I, yeah. I can, I can watch the extended, extended editions. <laughs> right. like, I can't, I can't, I can't get enough. Yeah. So I'll watch 36 hours of the Hobbit and the yeah. thing. So um, I really actually funny. I wanted to do the, um, the show. The, the show, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Just like, I, I, if I don't touch on every major uh, sci-fi thing, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to die happy. <laughs> One final question on this. We'll talk about 12 Monkeys in a second, but like, does it feel different just technically making like a hot, like, I mean, in some sense, Dune is a fantasy drama. Like, does it feel different technically making a fantasy drama like Game of Thrones now? Or is it basically the same tools in your toolkit as, you know, as, tw as 20 years previous? You know what, for me, it feels like, it, it, in a way, I feel like I'm home. You know, like it, it was something I, it was, it was an experience I had when I was so young and nothing has compared to it until now. That's and, amazing. Yeah. So having I'm that so canvas glad for again, you. yeah, a career is not dissimilar to a marriage, you know, where it has ebbs and flows and you and you have to like find and rediscover and fall in love again and, 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 and you're changing and it's changing. And so it's this, you know, I, I'd say since I did Quarry up until now, I've been on a bit of a journey of like what exactly... I want to be saying what I want to be doing and, you know, getting to work with Miguel 
Sapochnik mm-hmm. on this was, you know, the real appeal because M- Miguel was there for me when I was show running and doing stuff. And so mm-hmm. you're having a friend call you up. I, I you know, I sent him the, there's a great article about how and not not trying to assign roles to either of us, but there's a great article about how when um, George Lucas was doing Raiders, he wanted Spielberg to do it. And the studio was like, you know, Stephen goes over. He doesn't mm-hmm. know how to make a movie for for very little. And, and he'd know, done 1940, he'd done 1941, whatever it's called. Yeah. And, it didn't and, work. <laughs> and, and, yeah, exactly. That's being kind. And so he, George said, look, you know, like we come out of TV, like it's like my money. I know I can talk to him and we'll get into it. And right. so we're going to get this thing done. And it was, it was similar. You know, this is, this is still a first season show. And my friend called me to come work on it. And I answered the call. I was like, I was so excited to, to make it work. So it, it does feel like I'm in, you know, yet totally new territory, but familiar that I've now, I mean, the privilege of getting to work in two major sci-fi yeah. fantasy, you know, such beloved uh, source material is is exciting. I love it. House Yatanus answers the call. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I guess that does bring up one final question, which is because you bring up Lucas and, and Spielberg and Star Wars, which is like, you're obviously very busy. You're going to be busy for a while, but is there a part of like the Star Wars universe that you would ever want to Yeah, I really want to direct. Mandalorian like I my kids Amazing. love it and I wow. see them love it in a way that I loved you know I saw Star Wars when I was seven in right. the theater and I saw it five times in the theater you know and so yeah. like and it was why I wanted to do this so when I come to sci-fi fantasy material it's like not only does it remind me of my childhood and that moment but it's more a feeling like my, my it's not like I have some you know incredible memory of childhood I, I'm recreating I just remember the excitement I had seeing that movie and when I'm on set, I never stop being a fan of the thing I'm doing. Like I can't tell you how mm-hmm. many times on on House of the Dragon or even on Dune, I just stop and just look at the sets and walk the sets and just like, you know, I'd, I'd be so excited. You know, my kids came to visit. You know, to be able to show them what I was working on and, and like you know and to be able to walk around the sets here is is like thrilling. Yeah, it doesn't become noise to me. It's like I am still like holy shit, like, I can't believe what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. like, this is unbelievable. Was well, as, as a fan of Dune, Game of Thrones, and Star Wars, I couldn't be more stoked for you to dip dip your dipper in, in all three of those universes. And I hope, yeah, I, hope got, it I just want to do something in Star Wars. I want to do something yeah. in Star Wars. And the fact that my kids like all love Mando is like, Great. Well, get ready for the Dune Pod bump. You know, this will probably put you over the top. Exactly. We're, we gotta, <laughs> We have had some ILM guests on That's before. True. Well, Greg Yatanis, thank you so much for joining us. We're really, really thrilled and fortunate to have you here on Dune Pod. All right. We're going to be talking the rest of this episode about the time travel versus free will versus anarchy. We're talking Terry Gilliam's classic 12 Monkeys. Mm. I have a long history of like love for Terry Gilliam's work. And so, in fact, when Brazil came out, when I was growing up, I came from a very conservative family. And so I had to sneak into Boston to see Brazil when I was 15, Mm. you know, like it was like, because it was the only place it was playing. And I was just like mesmerized by what I saw. And of course, like right when I got to USC, when I I came out to California, Bear Munchausen had come out and I remember like literally walking across Los Angeles to have a car yet uh, to like go see that in like the you know, Westwood movie theater oh, yeah. uh, with my, with my college roommate. So that was, uh, I also learned that day that LA is not a walking city. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let me just hit a couple of things here really quick, some housekeeping, and then we will get into the 12 monkeys talk next week on Dune Pod. So we have Greg's partner in crime on house of the dragon. Ryan Condal, the showrunner, and he is joining us to talk the biggest action sci-fi film of all time, James Cameron's Aliens. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. Greg, do you have a take on theatrical versus the 1990 special edition? Oh, yeah. Scoop Ryan. Get your take (laughs) in before he can weigh in on this. You know what? It's funny. I invited Ryan. I was like, we've been all so busy and spread out and, you know, and, and, you know, that we've not had a lot of time to hang out together, but I was like, anytime my girlfriend goes back to LA, I'm always like, right. Like, do you want to come over? We can watch the special edition, (laughs) drink some whiskey and hang out. So, I mean, look, I wish that DVDs and DVD commentaries and special editions and all these things were out when I had more time in my life. Like when I was like growing up and all through high school and all through college, I would have devoured 
everything. So in my case, like I love it because it fleshes out more stuff, but I love it because I've seen the original. And then I'm like, oh, wow, I get to see what was happening on the colonies. Like, does it need it? No, but like I remember, and I think it was funny because I know that Interstellar had to take a cue from that scene when when Ripley goes in and sees that message from her daughter who's right. now mm-hmm. dead, you know? Right. Like that was, those kind of things were sort of fantastic. I understand why they were they were out, but loving the movie as much as I did, like being able to see those things in, I think are great, mm. you know, and the more elaborate sequences. So how about you guys? I have to revisit for the podcast because I haven't looked at, I haven't done the side by side in a while, but I do really remember some of the newt scenes from the directors as being like unfortunate that they were lost. Like those were there's mm. some like there's some emotional stuff that I felt could have stayed in there, at least that stand out to me. But that that, that might have been more just me watching the extra scenes rather than seeing them in place. Right, right. The right. directors also does have the, the machine gun sentries, right? The tur- yeah. the turrets are kind of required. I think the turrets <laughs> are an important ad. Yeah. Which are we officially watching? We're doing the special edition. It is available for rental on all major platforms. It's like eight bucks for both editions uh, in a bundle on iTunes right now. So folks can check that out. All right. Well, so really quick, Dune News. Would you like to know more? Dune News. There's no Dune News. We're not doing Dune News. There's no Dune News. (laughs) So if you're listening to this now, go back and re-listen to our last episode where we covered Dune 2021 because that will be the best Dune News ever. Yeah. All right, so so Greg, one last piece. What was the first time that you touched Dune? Where did you originally discover it? Was it Lynch's Dune was your first hook there? Uh, I did not see Lynch's Dune in the theater. I would catch it in fragments, and I, I just I found it extremely like it didn't. I, I was not as sophisticated yet to appreciate David Lynch as much as I do now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny, I was doing a mini series for ABC called Empire. It was a gladiator thing years ago, but Trudy Styler was in it. And I ended up having lunch with uh, her and Sting. Huh? And <laughs> I asked to, uh, I said, you know, I, I said, you know, it was an icebreaker. It was a point of conversation. You know, I'm sitting here with Sting <laughs> and I'm like, hey, you know, we have Dune in common. You know, like, we, oh, we, yeah. We, like, he was That's like, amazing. I won't ever talk about Dune. Whoa. Amazing. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So great. <laughs> ice not broken. Yeah. Ice it's not a broken. top a top three cod piece in yeah. all of movie history, and he won't talk about I it. I mean, what would be the other two that would go on there? Be something on Batman. And there's the one that has a a gun on it from the Tarantino vampire movie, right? Uh, the, okay. the Robert Rodriguez yeah, yeah, vampire. Dust till dawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. dawn. And then there's Zardoz. Those oh, are the yeah, other yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. I like that there's yeah. actually like a, you actually had an answer for that. We talked about it recently. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. Monkeys. I think it's time. Let's suck some monkeys. Yeah. 12 Monkeys is a race against time to see if we can escape our destiny. James Cole is a prisoner huddled underground in the year 2035, one of the few survivors of the plague of 1997. Or is he a schizophrenic in 1996 with paranoid delusions? Forced down this path, James will seemingly find himself transported through time again and again, struggling to uncover the details of how the human race was or will be killed and find out if there's a way to reverse it. Along the way, he will face true psychotics, lashing out against humanity's excesses. Can he unravel this mystery and enable humanity to recover its perch atop the food chain? Or will he be fodder for the army of the 12 monkeys? Mm, good. I like it. That's great. I absolutely love this movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. Me and I was like a little trepidatious. Just because like, oh, like we've revisited some movies that are older that I loved when I was younger and they haven't aged super well for me. And this movie is not one of those movies. This movie is, I think, Gilliam's, if it's not his best, it's right up there. One of his best movies. Mm. I agree. Do we have any take on the film that it was based on, the short film, La Chate? Yeah, it, it's funny. I, it was just in Paris and Pompidou has a great exhibit of Chris Marker's work. Mm. And that's really fascinating. Oh. And it started the conversation my girlfriend just about how you know 12 monkeys i'm doing this and that 12 monkeys was based on uh la jete which is this really actually shockingly emotional love story 
that takes place and is is done. It's a half hour short done in still black and white photographs. Yeah, with only one what? one moving image, shot. Yeah, one moving shot. Wow. And it is actually like aesthetically not dissimilar to Twelve Monkeys. Gilliam said he never saw it, but I, I, I would find that surprising because I know that I don't know why. You know, I think if there was something out there that work was based on, I'd be curious to see what was done. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you want to either to avoid or to sort of see what how something was handled. But you know, it's World War Three has happened. You know, Paris is wiped out. It seems more about like reviving the human race, but they're doing experiments with time travel, but in a very um, uh, almost dreamlike way, but it, it it does sort of center on a on a love story and kind of what what I liked what I, I didn't like the adaptation, but I loved the book is the time traveler's wife and the idea mm. of this man that keeps showing up in this woman's life at different different periods to the point where she calls him uh, he, you know her ghost mm-hmm. and he travels, which is would have been interesting in Twelve Monkeys that he he travels into the past. It's it's all based. It's all the exact same thing. He he is at an airport and has a childhood memory of seeing this man die in front of him and get shot. And in, in La Jetée, everybody's underground and they're experimenting with this like loop in time to hopefully learn how to get energy and get something to figure figure out how to do it. And so he goes back in time, back in time, back in time, that eventually they send him forwards in time and he meets people in the future that are also time travelers. Mm. And they send him back with this like thing, this energy that's going to be able to like revive them and restart culture again. But they say that they offer him, you know, a chance to sort of be one of them because they're all time travelers. He says, you know, I want to go back to her, to the past, to that woman. Yeah. And when he does, one of the the people from the underground culture, you know, that also traveled through time, kills him, and he sees himself dying. Wow. So for a thirty minute short, you know, they definitely took a lot from it and kept a lot from it. Mm. And you know, it's beautiful. It's in French and it's beautiful. And you can you can get you can watch the subtitled version of it on YouTube. It's available. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think anybody hearing this wanting to go back to watch 12 Monkeys after, like, I think La Jetée is a great warm-up if you're curious to kind of study 12 Monkeys. Of course, 12 Monkeys itself. And then there's a documentary made by these two, like, college filmmakers that followed Terry Gilliam around called uh, The Hamster Factor and Other Tales of 12 Monkeys. Oh, I haven't seen that. That's you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's actually really interesting because it gets into Terry Gilliam's process you really see the role of the producer mm. for him. You see like how he is like up and down and in and out and how he is reckoning making a like Hollywood movie. You know, I think the, I, I can't remember. I think Fisher King came out before, before it. Yeah. Yep. So that's what opened up. So irony is of course he was working with Universal after everything that happened with Brazil. You know, if you remember yeah. with Brazil, um, the big fight. there was a big fight over it and eventually his version got released. After like a public outcry and like protest campaign. Yeah. And I think his version won like LA film critics yeah. or something. And then they, they put it up at hamster factor. They, they, it was like a joke that one of the, one of the producers said, they said, if there was ever a documentary about this movie, we call it the hamster factor and other tales of 12 monkeys, because there's that scene where Bruce Willis is like taking his own blood and he's naked yeah. and he's sitting yeah. there and you sort of drop back out to this big wide shot. And through this visqueen in this, like this much of frame is a hamster wheel. And like everything's working and everything's going up. The hamster wasn't running in the wheel. And like <laughs> Terry Gilliam was like obsessed with getting this hamster to run more than he was caring about performance. What Bruce Willis was doing. Bruce Willis just sitting there naked. That's funny. While like Terry Gilliam is trying to get the hamster to. <laughs> That's the It's all sort of, you know, relatively pre CG. So you couldn't right. like, you, you know, can add the hamster in post. <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't do that. It was again like a really tight budget. I think it was twenty nine million. Crazy. Yeah. What was yeah. really great, you know, funny enough, was you know I remember this quote from Monty Python that I've actually carried with me all throughout television, which Monty Python said, "If we had had twice the money, we would have been half as good." Mm. And I think the scrappiness of Twelve Monkeys is part of the appeal. I mean, one of the things that was comes out in the documentary is like how on a set decorating level everything is found objects mm-hmm. so that they were just like going to flea markets and yard sales and finding flat lenses stuff and, and then plastic and clocks and yeah that. and that like the most expensive thing i think in the whole movie is that like tv mm-hmm. orb, orb ball yeah 
thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Getting, and again, you watch in the documentary how they're trying to get that to work. I'm sure it was like the shark and Jaws. <laughs> like, yeah, know. exactly. It was like the shark and Jaws. There's so many Gilliamisms in the opening to this movie. Like there's, you know, like the prison that Bruce Willis is in feels like the prison from Time Bandits that the the crew ends yeah. up with right before picking they him face up from the thing. The evil, yeah. yeah, picking him up from the thing. You get, as we talked about in our Time Bandits episode, you get you know, Gilliam's fear of transparent plastic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Things wrapped in transparent plastic, which is like Bruce Willis's suit and a bunch of other outfits. But the whole like suiting up instructions that are being broadcast. All openings of your garment must be sealed completely. If the integrity of the suit is compromised in any way, if the fabric is torn or a zipper not closed, and then having like the decontamination get dumped on him like that was awesome yeah. you also get like terry yeah. gilliam's like sort of phobia or like concerns about commercialism like both mm. like he has some kind of weird phobia about department stores in general like that shows up in brazil and then in time bandits and you know bruce willis ends up in a department store when he comes back when he like goes to the surface and there's a you know a bear there and a you know, a line right. or whatever. And uh, it's playing and- Silent Night, which I thought was a really nice touch. Like all these, so many great touches of things that are repeated multiple times through the film to lay the foundation of, is this real or is this all right. in James's head? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is like he, you know, he talks a little bit about going to the documentary for a second. He talks about the Fisher King was not a script he wrote. Mm. Neither was this, but yet he is like always trying to make it his own. Mm. So those, I'm not surprised that that's where he found places to to like interject those kinds of his take things. You know, I mean, yeah, whether it be like how the time travel worked or didn't work. Right, right. It's so funny because like you know that that conversation of like is this all in his head like never entered my mm-hmm. mind. Like I never thought he was just like a mental patient that was imagining all this. Like I was absolutely thought I was watching the thing I was watching. Right. I felt like, you know, the story continues on after he's dead. I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you in that I think it appears to be canonically that that is the case. He is a time traveler from the future. But what I appreciated, especially on a second time through is like, there are so many times, whether it's the keys or like when he originally gets uh, released by the cops after being arrested and Catherine comes and sees him and gets him sent to Baltimore Hospital, um, he asks one of the cops, where are you going? And the cop says, oh, you're going to the south of France. You'll love it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, then that pays off for him going to World War One and being in the trenches <laughs> in <laughs> right. France. Right, right, right. Oh, That's yeah, good. Yeah, I, didn't, that's I didn't make that connection. That's good. I didn't catch yeah, that. Yeah, and then yeah, seeing the keys, that. like sitting in the mental hospital, seeing ads for the, the keys, and then keys hearing it and later on the radio, and yeah. then going to the keys. like Or when Catherine is giving her Cassandra Complex speech, she opens with a quote of Revelations. And mm-hmm. then when they're in Baltimore, the street preacher the street is doing the same that. revelations yeah. quote. Yeah. So it's like all of these things are like laid down. Well, for yeah. me, I think it was like Madeline Stowe's performance was actually the thing that made me question reality in this because yeah. like we we end up going on a journey with her where she's not sure what reality is. And she's so convincing in that that I'm also like, okay, this seemed like a very sane lady and now she doesn't know what's up and she's like off, you know, stealing money from from beat up pimps or whatever and so you know i i gotta just follow which where she's going the other the other unresolved mystery in the movie as far as i i know is that the first time she meets him she thinks that she's seen him before and she keeps saying that i know i've seen this guy before unless she has seen already at that point seen the world war one trench photo that that's in 1990 when she's saying she's seen him she the, she's written the book in 1996 it's possible she's was doing the research already for the book but I, I don't think so I don't know what that is but doesn't that photograph answer the question if he's if it's in his head or not the photograph does I mean the movie is definitive yeah. about whether or not it's in his head or not. it's definitively not right because unless for all she's the reasons, in his head right like right <laughs> but I think there's enough in there where it caused me to just be like, wait, wait, wait. I just want to, it wasn't so much that I doubted the reality. It was more like the feeling of being schizophrenic yourself, where it's just like, I need to like touch wood here for a second. I need to like go outside <laughs> and like feel the grass and make sure I know what's really going on. I'm pretty sure. But like, I've, I've had my doubts. Yeah. 
Well, I want to call out, so so essentially, James is sent back by a panel of scientists in the future to collect information. They're specifically trying to find out when this virus got out and try and capture a pure essence of it so that they can basically restart humanity, be able to come out from being underground. And when he goes back into the past... He's sent to the wrong year. He's sent to 1990 instead of 1996. And then he gets arrested and thrown in jail. And then Catherine takes him to the Baltimore County Hospital. Um, and so I just want to hit, to me, one of the absolute... I mean, Madeline Stowe's performance is amazing. Yeah. I got to work with her on the pilot. Oh, you did? She's terrific. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, she is really fantastic in this. But I, I want to call out Jeffrey Goins, our man, Brad Pitt, uh, in this film. Yeah. This is an unreal performance from Pitt, like an underrated Pitt masterpiece. Oscar nomination, Golden Globes win. Like this was huge. Yeah, it's just he's had such a long career since then that you kind of forget everything that he did in this movie. Well, he said he loves to be a character actor. Like he's he's like he's like an incredibly handsome character yeah. actor. You know, he 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 like he loves to inhabit these like quirkier parts. He 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 knows when he when to play into his looks. And his charisma, but I love that he took something like this with his crazy eye and his all his ticks and everything else that was going on. You know, like it was a it was a great part. I mean, the three of them were fantastic. How did they do the eye? It must be. I don't contact. know. That's a question. It must have been some sort of whammy eyed contact yeah. thing that they gave him. Well, he comes across as totally nuts, but then also the the elements of his thesis around capitalism and, you know, sort of empty consumerism being a threat to humanity and that we're sort of over the line in terms of environmental responsibility and stewardship or lack thereof is totally rational. Well, well this is this is, again, what I'm saying about sort of being pulled into the movie's psychosis or like schizophrenia, where you're like... Brad Pitt's making some good points. Like, you know, you're, you're like, <laughs> right, like right, right. Uh, but like he is in fact a crazy person and like his big plan is lunacy. Um, yeah. But you're, you're like, oh yeah, he's making some good points about, and he's, this again is a big Gillianism of like, you know, buy, sell, color TVs and all this stuff. Like Terry Gilliam has some sort of hang up about modern appliances in every movie he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's yeah. like some big, like if it weren't for the refrigerators <laughs> and the toaster ovens, like we right. would be okay, but people keep having to buy those color TVs and hi-fi systems. And that's why we are in the state that we're in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do also want to call out, this is a very, very minor point, but this character of LJ Washington, who mm -hmm. is the guy in the, in the bow tie. I don't really come from outer space. Oh, LJ Washington, he doesn't really come from outer space. Don't mock me, my friend. Who's talking about how he's having a mental divergence and that, you know, when he's on the planet Ogo, where they're plotting the subjugation of the people of Pluto. Ogo, part of an intellectual elite preparing to subjugate the barbarian hordes on Pluto. But even though this is a totally convincing reality for me in every way, Nevertheless, Ogo is actually a construct of my psyche. I am mentally divergent in that. And then they I pan down and he's wearing like his bunny slippers or whatever. Mm -hmm. I just, <laughs> I thought that was magic. And again, to me, that, that laid into this theme of here's someone saying that they're crazy. They're completely deluded and they're aware of it, but also, I don't know, somehow integrating that. This is also where the, the sound design in the movie is really remarkable because mm. in that scene in the psych ward, you're getting the sound of the television, like the the cartoons on the television. Woody Woodpecker kind of, or whatever. You know, yeah. yeah, kind of seeping in as like, and there's a scene specifically where Brad Pitt kind of like does like a woo, and it's echoed by the sound from, he looks like a cartoon character in that moment. I need to make a telephone call. A telephone call? A telephone call? That's communication with the outside world, doctor's discretion. Ah, uh, nah. Uh, hey, all of these nuts could just make phone calls. They could spread insanity oozing through telephone cables, oozing to the ears of all these poor, sane people, infecting them. Wackos everywhere, plague of madness. Come on, let's go. In fact, very few, very few of us here are actually mentally ill. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're crazy as a loon. But that's not why you're here. That's not why you're here. It's not why you're here. You're here because of the system. 
And this is then repeated later, this kind of use of like, you know, the, the sound that's in the scene in the in the Vertigo scene where they see where they go and see the Hitchcock all nighter and they're watching mm-hmm. Vertigo and she comes out in a blonde wig and like an explicit Vertigo homage and the, the Vertigo score like, you know, like swells up like as she comes out, which again gives this like sort of like am I watching a movie about a movie or am I watching like a movie? Like, am I losing it right now? Or is this a real thing? It's just, (laughs) but it's so well done just technically that like you, you go with it. Uh, You can, you can ignore it if you, if you, if, if you choose to. Hmm. Can we just talk a little bit about, um, I just want to get Frank Gorshin and the review board. Like those guys were amazing. Well, funny how similar they were to the people that he was dealing with in yes. you know, the kind of Wizard of Oz sense, you know, where everybody's sort of mirroring somebody else. Right. It's funny how like they were very, very, you could almost find their counterparts with the, uh, the, the tribunal or whoever yes. it was. Yeah, the scientist. Totally. He was fully restrained and the door was locked. Yes, sir. I did it myself. Hmm. And he was fully sedated. He was fully sedated. Then are you trying to tell me a fully sedated, fully restrained patient somehow slipped out that vent? The clicking is amazing. The like, yes, that thing is that thing is a haunting piece of business. He chose. I would love to know what the discussion of that was. It's like I can do this thing with my mouth. Is that helpful in this scene where I look at the vent? I mean, I grew up watching Batman, um, you know, Batman 66 in syndication. And Mm. so him as the Riddler was a a huge impact on my life. So he basically, he escapes. Jeffrey creates a a distraction. He tries to escape. He gets caught. And then he's pulled back through time, back to 2035. And this is where we have, there's the voicemail from a woman that has been left on the line that he was supposed to call and leave the voicemail. We don't know for sure who that is. I love that voicemail. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. The Freedom for Animals Association on Second Avenue is the secret headquarters of the Army of the They're the ones who are going to do it. I can't do anymore. I have to go now. Have a Merry Christmas. Well. What? Did you or did you not record that message? It's a reconstruction. The idea that you call this number and it comes through and you have to like jigsaw puzzle it together. Mm -hmm. That was such a great piece. It's like the tech is so janky mm-hmm. that i love in it there's no there's no clean way it's like you call the vacuum company yeah and you like leave a voicemail and like that will somehow get deciphered and they could they have these little pockets in which to like hide stuff maneuver time like yeah and so i just i thought that was such a great like weird gag that somebody sat there like having to like tape that together mm. you know that everything underground was something that had to be found you're not making new stuff so there's this way that we can communicate with the past you know i just i just i thought the world building that was a great example of the world building that i love in that like that was thought out and it wasn't slick Mm -hmm. i guess conceptually like they must have discovered the voicemail like they must have discovered a voicemail machine somewhere underground that had the messages on it then they can figure out what the number is, and then send the number back so that the messages can end up being on it. Mm-hmm. I think they have a line where they say, like, this took us you know, mm-hmm. like, a while to decipher. And it's like, and then when she goes and leaves the message in real time, and he mm-hmm. knows it, so this know, is like, it's already happened. But this is the only, to this me, this was the only, the only plot f- hole that I saw, yeah. was because he later left another voicemail on the same line, they should have had his voicemail as At well. At the same time. The, the, the explanation time. in the movie is like, we just got your message. And it's like, well, but his message was recorded indistinguishably a long time ago from the future. Well, he wasn't there. Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we all got This is the thing where then we're all our own grandfather. Right, exactly. It worked in terms of dramatically. Uh, it works dramatically. It, and it's yeah. funny, too, because like Tenet basically takes this idea of the voicemail and like makes it like super slick and like cleans it up. And it's just like, OK, we're going to bury something. It's going to be in the super tube and like it's going to go forward and backwards in time. And like and Gilliam's version is just like it's it's a jigsaw message <laughs> that like has to be deciphered. Let me ask about the character, the guy who is calling him Bob, mm-hmm. um, 
who says that he's in another cell, maybe. Maybe he's another volunteer. Maybe he's back in the central office, or maybe he's just right. in your head. Like sometimes he's in the toilet mm-hmm. next to you. Yeah, like is that just a form of control coming across from the science panel, essentially the tribunal? I don't know. I don't know. It's like sometimes you sort of feel like you had that weird voice, and you know, and he's like talk, but you know, he then he'd be like a homeless right. guy. And Madeline you know? Stowe like reacting to him, like just the smell coming off of him with his teeth pulled out or whatever. She really like, sold was... the fact that he had bad breath. I I, I felt the ba- <laughs> the bad breath when she yeah, reacts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, again, this is a detail where you're just sort of like, well, wait a minute, like how he heard this in the bathroom and there's no one in the bathroom. Like it can't be like, unless Bob did come back from the future and he's crazy now because, you know, coming back, like can scramble your brain and like, you know, now he's your teeth. They can monitor you from your teeth. Yeah. Or like, it's broadcast that it is an unexplained, like Madeline. So saying that she's seen him before, there's a couple things that are like, wait a minute. Like there's a bit of mystery here still unresolved. Hmm. Yeah, there, I think too, like we want to fill those things in. I think just ultimately there's going to be, I just see how hard it is to like tidy all those yeah. things up, you know? Yeah. Mm. So it's like, I would imagine that it's when you get into like those time travel movies that they get, they get, you know, really gnarly and that there's going to be ultimately something that's going to get, get in there. So I, I, I try to be forgiving, but yeah, it's like there, there are sometimes, you know, if I being in the process, I would say like, those are just going to be like something weird they put in. And it's like, you're just going to have to wonder what the explanation is. And like, it's going to have to go into that bucket. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So he, so he's in the future. He goes back to the past. They screw it up and they send him back to world war one. He gets shot and then they bring him back and he goes to 1996. And that's where he kidnaps Catherine. And basically they run around Baltimore which I just want to pause for a second. Baltimore looks like it's apocalyptic already in 1996. Like, what is going on? I, I feel like it was that way for. I saw the wire, so I feel like it was that. Way. <laughs> I don't know where they shot it though. Did they shoot it in Baltimore, or did they? Yes, they shot it in Philadelphia. Okay. And, All right. I think they did both. I think they did uh, Philly and oh, Baltimore. Okay. Yeah. okay. Also, Tom Waits. Tom Waits singing as they're heading into Baltimore was was just intense. Well, I love that they end up at some point at essentially the movie theater from Escape from New York. Like, yes. the, they end up essentially at, at like the worst movie. Oh, yeah. That thing was crazy. The worst movie theater in the yeah. world. <laughs> that was scary. That that scene was really intense. Yeah. Very intense. Very intense. I guess they were, I remember reading something that like it was during some of those scenes. Like, I think there was a diehard movie that was doing reshoots while they're doing 12 Monkeys. So, like, Bruce was having to go over. And then, like, getting him back into this part from being, like, John McClane was really tricky for Terry Gilliam sometimes, you know? So, like, to strip him back, you know, was Mm -hmm. tricky for Bruce Willis to go back and forth, I think, if I'm not mistaken. No, there is a note on that in IMDb, specifically, that, like, Gilliam was giving him specific notes on, like, how to not be Bruce Willis' action star in this movie. And a lot, and, like, there's something, Mm -hmm. he's like, I don't want to see any of that, like, steel blue eye shit. Like, I want to see you looking, like, afraid (laughs) and dopey. Yeah. At least according yeah. to the IMDb trivia page. Greg, Greg, let me ask, what about you? Uh, what was your take on Moonlighting? I saw a bit of Moonlighting. The irony of me directing television all these years is that I wasn't allowed to watch TV mm-hmm. growing up. So <laughs> I didn't, um, I could watch like educational shows. I could watch things that were on Friday night and Saturday morning, but everything else was a school night. So I wasn't yeah. uh, allowed. So, so I would catch Moonlighting a little bit. And actually I know more about Moonlighting from the people that worked on it about mm. like how much they hated each other and all the tricks they used to do to get them to come out of the trailers and come to set. Wow. Amazing. There was this story about Moonlighting when, you know, Sybil and, and Bruce, they had to put their trailers on the opposite side of stage. Jesus. They had to play this game and neither would come out to set before the other one. There's <laughs> right. this power play. And so they would, um, somebody would call and be like on a walkie talkie as a piece of theater and be like, Okay, uh, Bruce is walking. Okay, okay, and then she would come out, and then on the other side, they'd be like, "Sybil's walking." Okay, okay, and then he would come out, and they would that's great basically meet up on set. But it was like they'd have to play all these games in order. Have to you get ever them. had? Have you ever had one of those? You don't have to name the people oh my involved, God. but you don't even know where. If you if I start on my stories, man, we'll be there all night. I can only imagine what a pressure cooker it is, right? So we were so fortunate. Last week, we got to interview Denny uh, on the red carpet at the Mill Valley Film Festival. And one of the things that Jason was calling out was how competent he is as a 
director, as an organizational leader, as a PR person, as, you know, just like as an inspirational person to be able to control all those things like that, that must be fantastically complicated to be a director in this kind of environment. Like, I can't even imagine how you have to make all the decisions that you make and balance everybody's feelings. Um, Yeah, that's why I liked producing. I think producing taught me, you know, there are two very different hats and directing, especially in television, you're marshalling the troops over the hill. Like, you know, you are the leader of that group and you're just, you have to move the day. You have to, you know, kind of work. And what's exciting is when you are really in the zone on something long-term, you really feel like, the, the crew becomes like this extension of yourself and you can, you know, you're just all reading each other's minds and you're able to flow. And it's like, it's just so exciting. You know, I just completed a sequence on house of the dragon and, and, and I was like, I would be torn between sitting at the monitors versus watching everybody do the work because it was like, it was, everybody was doing everything so perfectly that mm. I just mm. was like, it was, and it was all on the craft side of things to see it like, all happening in front of my eyes was incredible. And so producing is real management position. And so you really have to understand like, you know, what Matt needs versus what Jason needs versus what Denny needs. And you have to know that everybody needs a different brush mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and they need attention in a different way. And you're, you have to be a problem solver and producers need producers sometimes like I do, you know, where I, I know where my limitations are. It's why I had such a great experience when I was doing Unabomber with John Goldwyn. He was great at the mm-hmm. things I was either not as good at or had no interest in, you know, which was like he could navigate agents and business affairs and all this stuff that like drove me crazy because he could understand the game and how the game works. Um, I like more the logistical, physical nuts and bolts, like how are we going to move the pieces to achieve the thing that we're trying to do? do gets you, me really excited. Do you go in and say like in this battle scene, we're going to do a shot that's going to just like blow minds like and and make a major set piece and and then construct it and make that like a a, a major thing or is it is it generally you just sort of cranking it out um and doing no it, you construct it i think you know like everything you know you know i i like restriction and limitation and that's that's one of the reasons why i think 12 monkeys has always stayed with me is because terry gilliam when he starts to get too much money Baron Munchausen is a good example. Like, I don't right. know that the work gets better for it. I think he just mm-hmm. keeps filling the box with crazier <laughs> right. things. And right. so when he's, when the same reason why I thought David Lynch, when I saw why, why Twin Peaks was really like my way into David Lynch was like the restrictions of network television with David Lynch kept it from being too weird. And then when Firewalk With Me came out, it was like weird free for all. Right. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, the Showtime revival of Twin Peaks, I found phenomenal. Like, mm. I just thought it was like his work and craft and it had the balance of weird to the thing. And I was just like, I thought it was an unbelievable 18 hour film because it's a continuous story. And here, the same thing. I think that, you know, when I know what my box is, that's the thing where I do my best work. And I don't think I go in thinking that like something will blow minds, but I definitely try to find, you know, we were having a conversation recently about a sequence and it was with my, my director of photography, Pepe. And, um, you know, it was like, he was like, you know, I'm looking for the cinema. I'm looking for the cinema. I said, I think the cinema here is like an internal subjective way. I think we go inside versus trying to go out because Mm -hmm. we just don't have the ability to realize that. Mm. And if we go in, then we're making, you know, a very subjective experience and that, might be where the cinema is. Like, let's, how do we, how do we do small things that pull us inside the character's heads? And is that like going to blow people's minds? Like, I, we'll see. That's not for me to decide. I think I just go in trying to make the choices that feel interesting to me and that tell those emotional moments in cinematic ways. Well, I love that. I love that idea of the ability of constraint to inspire. Like, I mean, this is, of course, one of our good friend Biz Stone's constant refrains that informed, you know, his work in founding Twitter. And I, I love that idea here with Gilliam really just having so many, like, yeah, as you said, like found objects and working within like sort of a set box, but still managing to create this, uh, this thing that looks, that still looks fresh to me. It's still, it doesn't look dated. Like, you know, it was like, oh, like, you know, if they could do it a different way, they would. I, I think it still absolutely right. looks like a movie you'd want to watch on a big screen. They didn't reach for something that is like a bad dated version of something. Yeah, exactly. What I've always found as a filmmaker is being able to control the money 
which is what you see Gilliam in these meetings, you know, they're like, look, this is going to cost $7,000. This is going to cost $20,000. You know, it's like the money goes quick. Yep. Mm. And so I found both on my work and how that's why I got into producing was like, oh, wow, when I control what people are spending, then I'm really guiding my creative vision if I can understand the money. Yeah, that makes mm. sense. So, you know, and so you could see him having to do that there, although it's, a, it's something he clearly has no interest in. You know, people are just sort of having those like, come to Jesus, talks to them constantly in the documentary. And you need that. But the result is fantastic. The fact that they use this, like, there's these real turbines to, to make that into the time machine is right. great, you know, and the pulsing weird things. But they, they took those abandoned power plants and really turned them into uh, Looper. Funny enough, another time travel Bruce Willis piece mm -hmm. was in these, I was shooting in New Orleans. And when I went inside this uh, warehouse that we were doing the shootout in during Quarry, I was like, oh, this is the Looper time machine Crazy. place, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it was great. I'm like, oh, that was a great kind of nod to 12 monkeys. Like, you know, you see how, and, and, you know, and the other thing that like, why I wanted, you know, to focus on 12 monkeys is that, I mean, one, as a filmmaker, like I wish I had started a little sooner to be making nineties thrillers. Right. Like I wanted to direct nineties thrillers, 12 monkeys being like one of the pinnacle ones, but I love things like yeah. awful entry and Pacific Heights and hand that rocks the cradle and all those kind of nineties, uh, psychological, the psychological thriller, uh, Sleeping with the Enemy, all those things where you're using, as you've pointed out, sound design, music, great performance, smart casting, tight script, and constraint. You know, most of those films all were kind of simply told. There were still those kind of films that existed, which don't quite exist anymore, which is like that, you know, those sort of mid-budget thrillers. Right. Um, and it's a great genre. I keep hoping returns so that I can uh, work on them. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Um, I, I did want to hit one last scene before we talk about the finale, and that is there is a beautiful moment where they are in the Baltimore hotel before the pimp fight where he says, I want the future to be unknown. Mm -hmm. And to me, this was a direct Dune Messiah call, right? This is a big Dune moment, yeah. The staleness, we've talked a lot about like the staleness of predestination and how when you mm. know the future, you end up feeling it's it's a curse and not a blessing. And it it, it just right. paralyzes the actor. And this, of course, is a big theme for, for Dune Messiah that is unknown, that is sort of like as you're watching Dune, you don't realize that like, oh, this is not going to turn out well because being able to see the future is not going to be good for anyone. When you get into things like, you know, knowing the future and seeing the future. I mean, it's like the character becomes boring that way. Like you often mm -hmm. see these like characters when they, when they know the future, they're just like super Zen and they like talk in this weird way. You know, like a lot of times, you know, when we were making Dune, we were always trying to make things a little more domestic, you know, like we're having tea, we're doing something that just feels normal. Whereas like standing around, sometimes you have those scenes where you need to like be there and they need to be very theatrical and, and sort of other thing. But uh, then you have other things where you want to try to like make them small and intimate, you know, you're making the spaghetti sauce and the Godfather, mm -hmm. you know, that was always something mm. that, that stayed with me. And then sometimes you're getting, you know, the bigger, more heavier scenes. So, you know, when you have characters that can see the future and sort of know everything that's ever going to happen, they can of themselves become really boring because yeah. there's no sense of discovery. So uh, we dealt with a little bit of that on Dune, but what always sort of worked in 12 Monkeys is he's so conflicted because he doesn't necessarily believe right. what he believes. And that the idea that, you know, as he says during that movie, when he's in, when he's seeing Vertigo, he's like, he's like, the movie's always the same, but it changes you know, because you change. Right. You know, and that's part right. of the thing that he's like trying to get at is like, and then there's, you know, ultimately you just, you know, there's no way to ever predict it. Every, every movie about time travel always has that thing. Like if I hadn't picked up that payphone and made that call, what are things have been right, different, right. you know? So the shootout happens. He dies. Uh, Cole dies. Bruce Willis's character. You do have a moment where uh, Madeline Stowe's character, Catherine, she sees the young boy right. and has yeah. that smile and that recognition. So that's one loop that's closed. That was supposed to be the end of the movie, by the way. Oh, oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was supposed, Makes to, sense. It was supposed to go out on um, like the boy's eyes. The kid's eyes. Yeah. The kid's eyes. And then they had another kid. That, in fact, the kid they cast wasn't getting it done. I heard that. I read producer, that. I read that Gilliam yeah. didn't like the kid. <laughs> and they had they literally had another kid standing by. And then interestingly, you know, Roven, who's producing, there wanted to be, there was this real push to give some sense of hope or closure or accomplishment or something to the movie. So it didn't just end there, which is where La Jate ends. Mm. And so Terry said that he, there's that second to last scene where the, where you do this big uh, crane down in the parking lot. Yep. He didn't want to do that. And Chuck fought him on it. And he said, he's like, 
fine, I'll do something, but I need to have like all these cars and oh, I'm going to create and this. And he basically got what he asked for right. and he had to do it. And then, and, but he was happy in the end. And then I think the scene on the plane was something that he fought against as well. Right. So Dr. Dr. Peter sits down and the woman scientist from the tribunal is sitting next to him and she shakes yeah. his hand and says, I'm Jones, I'm the insurance or I'm here for insurance she, or whatever. She makes like a friendly overture to him, which is like, oh, the world's all falling apart, Nespa. And he's like, oh, it's funny you'd say that. I totally agree. <laughs> I'm traveling the world to poison and kill everyone. And uh, and she's like, oh, we'll have a lovely conversation on our flight to San Francisco. I'm an insurance. And my interpretation of that was that this is where we get into like sort of the the ontological flaw of the movie's time travel theory is that like they're reacting to events unfolding in 1996 in the future and then in their real time sending people back to react to it. And so it's like, okay, Bruce Willis didn't manage to kill the guy. So we got to send someone else back um, and she's going to sacrifice herself because she's going to be exposed to the virus. But then they will have captured uh, that pure germ that they need to bring and they'll bring her back to study that pure germ in the future and engineer humanity's retaking of of the top oh interesting that was that's my my interpretation is like she was like the backup plan um that like if he didn't manage to kill what's his face that uh the the doctor that she would be there to to get the pure germ and bring it back so she's not stopping it from happening. Right. She is just getting the she's getting it and taking off. Which is consistent with the idea that you can't actually change the past. Right. It already happened. Because it already happened. All you can do is you can take information from the past into the future as long as it doesn't affect what already happened. So you can potentially affect the future and how we're going to get out of this mess, um, but you can't stop the five billion people from dying. That's interesting. I thought in a way that the line about insurance was like her, like in a way that that tribunal, which is like clearly in charge of things, mm -hmm. like, you know, like being in charge of a dead world is still being in charge. Mm -hmm. And that there was like, that it wasn't necessarily for the good of humanity, but that sort of making, making sure, sure it that happened. Wow. Impact. Yeah. That was so my was take. Like, you guys yeah. are yeah. dark. Oh, interesting. You guys are. You guys <laughs> <laughs> That makes, I mean, yeah. that's a very Gilliam take though. I think that's totally valid because Gilliam certainly comes from a standpoint of like the people that are controlling things are nefarious by definition, right? I mean, that's like the, right. it's like she is essentially. Right. Also insurance could be, I'm in here to ensure that, that, you know, that we got the virus. And I think your interpretation is closer because they definitely wanted to have that. It was like all for something, right? You know, was from what I've been able to glean from what people have said that were involved with it, that it was like all for something. I love mm. this. Like. I love this take though, that like she got sent back to, to ensure like, it happens. It would yeah. be funny too if Gilliam was forced to put a button on the movie that like made it, it feel <laughs> yeah, that made it feel happy. And he was like, Okay, I'll give you your fucking button. It's like it's it's it's, it's that like all the people doing this are actually want to kill the five billion people so that they remain in control of the ruined world. Right. Yeah. Right. Pretty good. Yeah. Man, this movie has just gone up in my esteem, having talked about it with you. I, I appreciate it even more than I did in rewatching it. I just love, I love a closed loop time travel story. Mm -hmm. that, that's my favorite kind of time travel story. Terminator being the kind of most perfect example of that. But this, to me, is of a piece. Um, and in Arrival. That yeah. Arrival. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Primer being the best example of that. But Primer was oh, yeah. great. I was really, you know, Shane Carruth, I wanted Shane to like act in, he's actually a really good actor. I, I, I almost cast him in Quarry. Amazing. And, um, and I was like, you know, the, the upstream color was like, that movie was really something. I've seen that movie yes. like two or three times. Like I really, really? like, I just something about that movie really haunts, haunts me. It's haunting. I saw it at IFC and he did a Q&A afterwards. And it was one of the more masterful Q&As I've ever seen because people were just like, tell me about the what is going on in this movie? Like, we're just like really trying to nail him on <laughs> yeah. like, I've seen this movie. It bothered me. And you're going to tell me what happened in this movie. And yeah, he yeah, was, yeah, yeah. he was doing such a good job of just like going right up to what he had determined was the line for, I'm comfortable telling you all of these things that I think are on the, on the screen, but I am not going to tell you beyond this line because I'm intentionally leaving that as that's where the audience comes in. And, and right, I'm, right. I'm being much more kind of authoritarian about how he's saying he's very generously sort of saying that in a, in a way that yeah. like made you feel invited in. It was, it was really well done. 
All right. Well, so that brings us to uh, who would Tilda Swinton play? <laughs> this is our, our only recurring segment besides Dune News. Is That's every, right. every okay. movie that we discuss, we talk about who Tilda Swinton, if you had to recast one role, who would you put Tilda Swinton in? Oh, I think she would have to play whoever the crazy guy was that keeps kind of showing up throughout the piece. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's yeah. what Tilda Swinton. Bob? Bob, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so Amazing. good. She would be a great Bob. I would cast her as uh, Jones in Insurance, which is maybe just a little on the nose, but I think it's like a solid like win above replacement move because you, you'd you'd have her just like sort of for a few key scenes and it would right. it would elevate yeah, that's the good. whole. That's a good. That's a good. Yeah. One. That's a good one. Uh, I would cast her as Doctor Fletcher just to hear Tilda do the teeth suck. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. We did it on covering 12 monkeys really quick. We have uh, one voicemail. Here we go. Doompod is Corey in Austin, Texas. Um, I'm actually, you guys are recording at a weird time today and I'm at work. So I just strip off all my PPE in between patients and run outside to leave a quick voicemail. Uh, 12 monkeys. I remember really loving it when it came out. I probably watched it on VHS a few times, but I can't say I've watched it in well over 10 years. I'm assuming it's still good, so I'm really curious to hear what you guys have to say about it when you break it down. I do remember this is when I was really starting to take notice of Brad Pitt outside of, like, Dumb and Louise, he was good, but, like, this one, I was like, wow, he's really awesome. And then Bruce Willis was always a hero of mine um, when I was younger. I loved him. So I loved, like, John Belushi as a little kid, and then after John Belushi, I was really into, like, say, Chevy Chase, and then I was really into Robin Williams. And then Bruno kind of took over that comedy spot when he did Moonlighting. I loved Moonlighting a whole bunch when I was growing up, and I thought he was just so hilarious. Um, so, yeah, there's a little bit of something, uh, but i got to get back to work. So Put your uh, PPE back on, Gory. I can't wait to hear it. And, again, I can't wait until Thursday. We're almost here to be together watching Doom. It's going to be great. All right, bye, guys. That was great. Always Amazing. good to hear from Corey. Greg, Corey calls in uh, every week. He's our, our most loyal listener. And we're going to see Corey in person for the first time at our screening on Thursday. So we're very excited for that. Excellent. Yeah. He's flying from Austin to San Francisco to watch Dune with us on IMAX. We rented yeah. out at the entire theater for opening night. Yeah. Oh my God, that sounds so fun. Um, all right. Anything else, Greg, that you have to plug other than House of Dragon, which I think everyone could not Everyone's already Everyone's going to watch that. Right. You don't need to yeah, plug I, it. <laughs> I don't think you need to plug it. Everybody's everybody's there. You've got a bigger audience for the your thirty second teaser, which is like got like five frames of footage than like in the Super I Bowl. I can, I can say though that just like as a fan, like it is not going to disappoint. So all right, mm-hmm. you heard it here. Sure. Could not be more excited. It's such an incredible era on that world, and uh, it's just a great a great fully formed tale. So cannot wait to see see what you all have put together. And that's it for this special episode of Dune Pod. I want to thank Jason and Greg for an amazing conversation. Next week, we're joined by Greg's partner in crime, Ryan Condal, showrunner of HBO Max's Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. We cover the best science fiction action movie of all time, Aliens, the special edition. Available for rent on all major platforms. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts as it really helps new listeners find the show. And be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so you never miss an episode. You can also hang out with us whenever you want on our Discord server. A link is in the show notes. DudePod is a Tape Deck Podcast John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Clips and transcripts were provided by Sophie Shin. The episode was edited by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio and produced by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week. <laughs>